pray for those people. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to wait for you all to get there today because we're going deep today. We saw last week that wherever two or more are gathered, there is sure to be conflict. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what God did is He brought order for His creation through the establishing of various roles of authority and submission. And we said that authority and submission is not based on inferiority or supremacy but simply for the purpose of maintaining order. There are many women that are far more spiritually mature than men, maybe even better teachers and preachers than the pastor even. I don't like that statement, but i got to say it. We're, We're commissioned to teach truth. But because they are spiritually mature, they will actually submit themselves to the elders and fulfill their proper role. So it's not based on inferiority at all. It's simply to maintain order in the society. Now, we noted two key truths, and this was the first one last week, that in the Scripture, where there is authority and submission, it is, in fact, a mutual submission, very often neglected by the church. This whole discussion of Ephesians chapter 5 on Submission and authority springs from verse 21, where we read, Be subject one to another. And so we said that it's really an issue of love. The ones who are in authority must seek the best of the ones that they lead and seek their best interests. Husbands, love their wives. Do what's best for their wives. Parents, though you're in an authority role, you do what's best for your children. You love them. And it is a submission to them in a very real way. Secondly, we noted that submission is an absolute impossible thing for mankind. It's not just that it is difficult. It is, in fact, a work of the Spirit. And we said that because of two reasons. One, every one of us carries the flesh... And the flesh always has as its goal to seek to exalt itself against God and against other people. And so because you and I carry the flesh, it automatically wars against the spirit and we need help. We also said that submission in its basic essence is love. That's the whole motive behind it. It springs from that attitude. And love is something we don't have. You and I as human beings can storge love, the Greek word for family love. We can phileo love, the Greek word for brotherly love. We can arao love, the Greek word for romantic love. But you and I cannot in and of ourselves agape love, unconditional love. Because there we are taught in 1 John chapter 4 that God is agape. He is unconditional love. Well, if He is unconditional love, what does that say about you, Bill? That he's not unconditional love. And Kathy said, Amen. Okay. Yeah, if we were unconditional love, then we would be God. So we need, more than anything else, God. With God coming into us in the new covenant, now we can agape love. 
And so we said then that submission is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, let's just follow the progression. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The results of that come in verse 19. We will then sing in our hearts. Verse 20, we'll give thanks. And we will be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So submission is really not something you and I do, but rather something that is accomplished in us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we yield to him by faith. Submission is a fruit of the Spirit. Very clear. And it is a fruit that you and I desperately, desperately need. Now, God, beloved, has revealed these plans, these purposes, this order, with the intent that it would be followed. God is not into Divine Ethic 101 being an optional course, right? When he gives a principle of authority and submission, he gives it with the intent that it would be obeyed. Isn't that right? Now, therefore, when man enters into rebellion... There are going to be some painful consequences. And that's a tragedy. Painful consequences tend to heighten with the more intimate the relationship. And so we're going to see the painful consequences specifically in the most intimate of relationships that we have. And what's the most intimate relationship available to us? The male-female husband-wife relationship, isn't that right? And I don't have a doubt in my mind, beloved, that as you and I peruse history, we're going to find that women have borne the brunt of this. Hence, the reason we're going to title this this morning, The Abuse of Women. I want to be honest with you. We could spend all day here citing examples of this. In cultures throughout history and in our own culture today. I don't want to get into that. If we start to do that too deeply, we're going to get sidetracked and we'll really just run off on a tangent. So I don't want to do that this morning. What I do want to do, though, is cite a few examples just to give you an idea of how women have been abused with this issue of submission. Let's cite, for example, first of all, the Greek society, the ancient Greeks. In the Greek society, the wife's role was simply to bear children and keep the home. She had absolutely no rights. There was not even, watch this, a procedure for divorce in the Greek culture. When you married a woman, you were stuck. It's that simple. No divorce at all. The husband would find sexual pleasure wherever he wanted, any time he wanted, with other people. That left women alone at home. And what happened very often was women would find sexual relationships with the slaves of the household. Demosthenes, an ancient Greek writer, wrote this. And I want you to listen closely to this. We have concubines for daily cohabitation... And we have wives for bearing children and being faithful guardians of, of our household affairs, end quote. That's a tragedy, isn't it? I have a wife to bear legitimate children and keep the home. And I'm off all over the place doing whatever I want to do. And no procedure for divorce. Women just had to endure it. Roman culture wasn't much better. There, divorce was allowed for any reason at any time. And so divorce was rampant. Marriage turned out to be something in Roman society uh, not much better really than legalized prostitution. 
Women did not want to have children in Roman society, therefore, because they wanted to keep their bodies. And bearing children oftentimes did a lot of abuse to a woman's body. Feminism was rampant. In Roman society, we find women engaged in wild boar hunting, sword fighting, wrestling, anything they could do in an effort to exalt themselves and put down men. What about Jewish society? The ones who had the revelation of God wasn't much better. They elevated the role of marriage a little higher, but still not good enough. They actually had a prayer every morning that every Jewish man would pray. Now, I want you to think about this, guys. Ladies, too. When you got up in the morning, the very first thing you would do, men, is pray this prayer. Oh, my father, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. End quote. And this from the people who had the revelation of God. Then there's our society, which we're not even going to start on. It's a sad thing, beloved. When people abandon God's revelation, there are painful consequences. And it is a tragedy. But I want to put to you that there's a greater tragedy. And that is this. When the people of God, who have God's revelation, misunderstand it, and therefore misapply it, and therefore still pervert the husband-wife relationship by using God's word to do it. That is even more tragic. Wouldn't you agree? Because then what hope is there for men and women? What, help is, what hope is there for, for truth which brings respect and love? If you're not going to get it in God's word, where are you going to get it? And it's happened. I believe, in fact, that there are three key verses in the scriptures that are being used by the church today in a prolific way to pervert the role of men and women. And I want to look at those three verses today. The first of which is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. But before we start, I really need us to pray. Can we do that? Our Father... We're not just going to study the Bible today. We're going to be studying what people have taught about this Bible. And that's sometimes a hard thing to do because we've got to point out error. Error that perhaps even some people in this assembly are believing and teaching. Because they have in fact been taught themselves. It would be very easy to be seen as one who is ministering from arrogance or pride. And saying this is the truth. That's not our heart. I pray that that would not be felt or, or, or thought by anyone here. But that our true goal is really simply to present the truth which sets men and women free. Free to be who they were created to be. Fulfilling the roles that you have ordained for us. That there might be peace and harmony and love. That the world then can look at and see. And so that's our prayer. We lay it at your feet, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you've been a Christian at any time, for any length of time, and you've been in churches, I believe that you would agree with this statement. That wives have traditionally received the brunt 
of Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. Let's read it together. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Submit, submit, submit. Now, you may have been in a church that taught the Bible in a balanced perspective. And so you might not agree with that statement that women receive the brunt of this passage. But I would say to to you this, that if you have dealt with women at all on an intimate basis from other churches, then you would agree that women have indeed borne the brunt of this passage. And that's a strange thing to me because there are three times as many verses that deal with the husband's role as there are verses that deal with the women's role. Isn't that interesting? And yet it seems to be taught like this. Submit, submit, submit. And we seem to be neglecting the role of the husband. Love, love, love. Some have even gone so far as to teach that women are actually to obey their husbands. And I would point out to you immediately that that word is not used in the text. You will find it in Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents. But that's not the word that's used in Ephesians 5.22 with the wife. She's not called to obey her husband. She's called to submit to him. Which really means to honor him. To respect him. That's all I'm going to say about that today. We're going to deal with this issue next week. And what the true proper perspective is all about. But suffice it to say, this is taught. I counseled with a couple once where the husband was beating his wife physically. And I want to quote to you what he told me. Listen to this. He would tell her when he was beating her, Why do you make me do this? If you'd only obey me, this wouldn't happen. Now, beloved, that's a tragedy. But her words are even more tragic because when I began to confront him over what he was doing, she then said, no, 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 no. He's right. He's right. I do force him to do it. I just have a problem obeying him. And if I'd only obey him, it would all work out. Gag. Obviously, there is a problem. And I think this prompts us to ask a question. And that's this. Why the unbalance? Why so much stress on women submitting? Well, Frank, I mean, that's easy to answer. Why, Why are women just taught and pushed so hard all the time to obey and to submit? Well, Frank, that's easy. And there it is. Well, it's because women are so prone to usurp authority. I mean, Frank, all you've got to do is is look around. Look at the society. It's all over the place. Women's live and rebellion and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's everywhere. And not only society, Frank, we even got scripture to support that this is the way women are going to be. Really? Yeah. Well, haven't you heard about Genesis 3.16? Let's turn there. 
Now, I'm going to wait for everybody to get there because I want to make a statement and I want you all to hear it. I don't want you to be sidetracked. It's not too hard to find. It's the first book. Then go to the third chapter and you should be there. What I am about to share with you is the most prominent view in evangelical Christendom concerning Genesis chapter 3. It is taught by virtually every major seminary in the country. It is taught by virtually every major theologian in this country. I could, before you today, name the names of those men and you would know them immediately. They are famous, renowned scholars. And they hold to this view. I don't have a doubt in my mind that as I teach this to you in just a moment and present it to you, that virtually all of you, certainly most of you, would have heard this view and probably hold to it. I myself was taught this view, held this view, and in turn taught others this view. And then a dear brother in the faith came and shared with me what God had been teaching him. And I tell you, instantly deep in my spirit, I said, this is the truth. And so I did some more detailed study, and the more I studied, the more it became confirmed. Now, do you realize the dangerous ground that I'm on? Really? I mean, I'm gonna, I, I could name the names of all these people, and you know them, and many of you follow them. And I could say, I'm going to teach something different than what they teach. That's a, that's a dangerous thing to do. To be, I could be easily thought of as this young upstart who's questioning and rebelling and slandering and all that. And that's not my heart. Even though that's maybe what I, the way I am. But that's not my heart when it comes to this issue. Because the fruit of misunderstanding in a male-female relationship is going to be tragic. And I think it's time for some of the tragedy to end. And so what I'm asking from you today is that you would be very active participants today. I want you to really give some close attention. Try to stay with me here because we're going deep. But I need you to see this. And I really need you to come as a student, not so much as a teacher today. Come as a student. Come in the spirit of Isaiah 118. Come, let's reason together. Come in the spirit of Acts 17. Be a Berean. Search out the scriptures and see if what we teach you today is not the truth. And if it's the truth, then by all means embrace it. Because the truth will set you free. Okay? I want to read to you, in fact, from one of these theologians. And let's start first by reading Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And you know the context here. We've had the fall of men and women into sin. God draws them out of the bushes. And then he begins to pronounce a curse upon the serpent. And putting enmity between the serpent and the woman. Then comes verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now here is where the controversy comes in. It's verse 16. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Listen to the words of this man. And again, if I gave you his name, you'd instantly know who he is. And he's very respected. 
As with spiritual gifts, the distinctions of headship and submission are entirely functional. Now, right there, we would agree. Isn't that right? Spiritual gifts, they're a functional thing. They're used to maintain unity in the body. Headship and authority, entirely a functional thing. Right? Not an issue of inferiority and superiority. They're there just to maintain order. So we would agree with that first part, right? But now listen to what he says next. As with spiritual gifts, the distinctions of headship and submission are entirely functional. Listen. Ordained by God after the fall. Did you hear that? In other words, once men and women fell into sin, God now established this thing that we're about to read of. As a consequence of Eve's disobedience of God's command and her failure to consult with Adam about the serpent's temptation, God told her, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The desire spoken of here is not sexual or psychological, both of which Eve had for Adam before the fall as his specially created helper. It is the same desire spoken of in the next chapter, Genesis 4, where the identical Hebrew word is used. The term there comes from an Arabic root that means to compel, impel, urge, or seek control over. In other words, the Lord warned Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, that is control you, but you must master it. Sin wanted to master Cain, but God commanded Cain to master sin. In light of this close context meaning of the Hebrew word, therefore, the curse on Eve was that woman's desire would henceforth be to usurp the place of man's headship and that he would resist that desire and would rule over her. The Hebrew word used for rule in Genesis 3.16 is not the same word that's used in Genesis 1.28. Rather, it represented a new despotic kind of authoritarianism that was not in God's original plan for headship. Well, what's happening here? Listen closely. With the fall, then, and its curse, came the distortion of woman's proper submissiveness and of man's proper authority. That is where the battle of the sexes began, where women's liberation and male chauvinism came into existence. Women have a sinful inclination to usurp man's authority, and men have a sinful inclination to put women under their feet. The divine decree that man would rule over women in this way was part, listen to this, was part of God's curse on humanity. And it takes a manifestation of grace in Christ by the filling of the Holy Spirit to restore created order and harmony of proper submission in a relationship that has been corrupted and disordered by sin. End quote. Now we would agree with the first part. The roles are entirely functional. We will agree with the end part. It takes the grace of God to bring harmony in a relationship. But in between, I'm not so sure we ought to be buying that. But that is the preeminent view that is taught in the church today. What do we mean? Well, here it is. Look at it closely. That women have been cursed by God with a sinful inclination to rebel against the authority of their husbands... And husbands have been cursed by God to rule despotically over them. In other words, then, let me give you some ideas so we can put some uh, visual to the verbal. 
This is kind of the idea we get. The way that women are going to try to be. Some of them, of course, will be better at it than others. All the while this is going on, men too have been cursed by God to rule like little despots. There we are. And just like with women, some men will do a great job of it. In any event, the end result that we get is that this is the way marriage is going to be. Battle it out, guys. I want to present to you the support for this view. I want to teach you what they teach. That's only fair. Right? Then we'll present the other view that I want to share with you today. And let's see which one stands up. The first thing I think that ought to alert us is this little word, cursed. Scour the passage from Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. And let's find the word cursed. We find it in verse 14, where we learn that the serpent is cursed by God. We see the word cursed again in verse 17, where the ground is cursed by God. But look closely at verses 15 and 16. And verses 17 and 18, when we deal with the man and the woman, we don't find the word cursed. That's because our father is not in the business of cursing his children. What we find is that man who was going to have work before now is going to toil in his labor and there's going to do it by the sweat of his brow. We find women who would be giving birth before, but now they're going to have pain in the childbirth. But nowhere is the word cursed used of a man or a woman by God. Because God is a father. And a father does not curse his children. What he does is he punishes them. Better, he disciplines them. Fathers, when you discipline your children and you spank them, you are giving them a reminder of the consequences of some faulty behavior. Isn't that right? Is that not exactly the way our Heavenly Father responds with His children? Does He not give them a reminder of the consequences of faulty behavior? Does it sound like your Heavenly Father is one who would curse His children? You see the problem? Let's start right away, and that ought to at least alerted us to some yellow flag. Let's start right away using the proper terminology that comes right from the Scripture. And say it point blank. Nowhere does God curse a woman. Nowhere does God curse a man. He disciplines them. Alright? You all agree? Well, let's look at the support for this view. The first... Area, the first reason, the first explanation given for the support of the view is this. That every curse given in this context has two elements to it. This is the weakest argument, but I want to give it to you because I want to give them all to you. Follow the passage. The serpent. He's the first subject. He gets cursed by God in verse 14. On your belly you will go. And when you're on your belly, what are you going to eat? Dust. So that's the first curse. The second curse is found in verse 15. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, between you and the woman. 
two elements to the curse of the serpent. Do you see it? Let's follow the flow and continue with it. In verse 16, woman, likewise, you're going to receive two elements to this curse. You will have, verse 16, as one element of it, pain in childbirth. Secondly, end of the passage, end of verse 16, you will be given a sinful desire to usurp the authority of your husband. Man, you likewise are going to have two elements to this curse. Let's use the proper term. Punishment. One, you are going to be given a sinful inclination to rule despotically over your wife. Verse 16. And secondly, verse 18, you will still labor, but now you will labor with sweat. You will toil in your labor. It will be hard work. And what about the ground? Again, two elements to the curse. It will grow thorns, verse 18. It will grow thistles, verse 18. And so you see the logical progression. It fits pretty good, doesn't it? One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Same for everybody. It looks great on the surface. That's not their only support, though. We said again, that's the weakest argument. The second argument they use, culture. Frank, all you've got to do is look around and you'll see it. Women have been rebelling against man since day one. Women's lib is not new to this country. It has always been there. Wanting to step outside the home, go off and build an identity separate from their families and, and do and do and do and, and it just happens. Culture supports it. Just look at mankind, you'll see it. Thirdly, the analogy of Scripture. Now, here I want to get a clue in a minute. When somebody studies the Bible, you look at the context. That's always the number one rule of biblical interpretation, right? Always context. You look at the grammar. You look at the phrase. You do some lexicography. Look up the word definitions and all this kind of stuff. Then you arrive at your conclusion. Now, to test your conclusion, there is this principle of Bible study called the analogy of Scripture. And what it means is very simply this. The Bible interprets the Bible. So if I arrive at a conclusion, say I'm studying a passage and I arrive at this conclusion, that I save myself through my good works. Okay? That's my conclusion. Now I, I go around and I start looking in the rest of the Bible and I come across Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which says you are not saved by your good works. You are saved by grace through faith. What did I just learn about what I found through my study that obviously I was wrong <laughs> you see how that works and what you do here is you use other very clear passages of scripture as proof texts and we do that here all the time that's why we're always going from passage to passage to passage to support what we're teaching because the Bible interprets itself are you all with me on that well if you're going to hold to a view that women have been cursed to usurp the authority of man, what are you going to want to find? A verse that teaches that this Hebrew word is used that way. Isn't that right? And so they go to Genesis 4-7, and I want you to turn there. You can just look at it. You know the story? What's happening here? Cain and Abel. Cain brought his sacrifice to God. Abel brought his sacrifice to God. 
God respected Abel's, not Cain's. Cain got a little upset. Verse 6, God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, if you do the right thing, will not your countenance be lifted up? But Cain, you've got to understand this, son. If you don't do well, watch this, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. See, sin just wants to get you. But you must master it. See it? Pretty clear? So it's very easy to go right back into Genesis 3.16 and say, look, the same Hebrew word, sinful desire to control. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Who wrote 3.16? Moses. Who wrote 4.7? Moses. See, same guy, same use of the word. Bang, there it is. There's the proof. And it's a close context too, isn't it? I mean, you only got one chapter between them. Woman, you have been cursed by God with a desire to usurp authority over a man. It's very clear. That's what they teach. And lastly, number one rule of interpreting the Bible, it's always what? Context. What is the context? Cursing because of the fall. Isn't that right? Punishment because of the fall. And so it's very easy to say this, that women have been punished by God with this sinful inclination to rebel against the authority of their husband. And there it is. And it's pretty easy to see. And again, beloved, this is taught throughout this country in every major seminary and virtually every major scholar in this country. But you realize that? If that view is true, then God has cursed marriage. Let me ask you a question. Is our God in the business of cursing his children? Or is he in the business of redeeming his children? Is God in the, in the damning business or is he in the business of restoring? Yeah, always restoration. Always restoration. Always redeeming. Does he allow man to thwart his plans? No. His will be done. And besides that, what kind of a view does this give us, not only of marriage, but of God? I'm sorry, beloved, I don't buy it. That's my question. Does that sound like God to you? I hope not. I hope not. Fortunately, there is another view. And this is it right here. That men and women got only one punishment in this passage. And there is, in fact, an explanation offered for that second aspect of it. And tune in here because we're going to go through this step by step. We would, in, for, in fact, put forth that all of them, all of the subjects in this passage got only one punishment or one curse. In other, and then God responds to it. Alright? In other words, it's a curse effect. Get it? Cause effect. Curse effect. It's Pastor Appreciation Month and you people... <laughs> yeah, but that's the idea. Let me show you what I mean. And again, let's just walk our way through the passage and I think this is going to become very clear. Serpent, what have you done? 
Well, because of what you've done, I curse you. And you are going to be on your belly. And on your belly, you're going to eat dust. Now, I want you to know, serpent, you don't get the last word. In comes verse 15, which is not another curse on the serpent, but an effect. God's responding to what has just happened. And he says this, my, I get the last word. Let me tell you about my plan of redemption. You tried to mess this thing up, serpent? Uh Uh-uh. You are going to have enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. One day through her seed is going to come the one that's going to stomp on your head, buddy. See it? It's not another curse on the serpent. It's God responding to what has just happened. Already doing what he does, which is what? Restore and redeem. See it? Do you all see it? I mean, I can't go any further if you don't get that. Go to the next one. Verse 16. Woman, now look, what you did was wrong. And you're going to have some pain in childbirth as a punishment, a reminder of the consequences of faulty behavior. Okay? But what's the very next word used in verse 16? Right after he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. Yet. Yet. What's that sound like? A contrast. Something else going on here. Yet, not another curse on the woman. But God responding to what has just happened. In a restoration of the role. Yet, you're still going to desire him and he's still going to shepherd you. That's the idea. Tuck that away. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. And explain it more fully. Let's go to this second argument of the analogy of Scripture. What verse did they use to support this view that women have been cursed with a sinful desire to usurp the authority of their husbands? Genesis 4-7. Let's look at it real close. I would share with you that Genesis 4-7 is a very obscure and difficult verse. I have commentaries on my shelf that will tell you that Genesis 4-7 is the most difficult verse in the Bible to interpret. Say, why is that? I want to show you, and we're going to do a little Hebrew. There's the verse. Sin is crouching at the door, and the New American Standard here says, its desire is for you, you must master it. First thing I want to point out to you is that there ain't no it in Hebrew. Hebrew has only two gender. Feminine, masculine. There is no neuter in the Hebrew language. There is a neuter in the Greek language. There is neuter in the English language. Neuter in the Spanish, I believe. But in Hebrew, it is either feminine or masculine. That's it. So what what does that say about this it? That is a translational interpretation by the translators of the New American Standard. And it doesn't belong. It is, in fact, a masculine word. And therefore, ought to be translated differently. Translated, in fact, his. 
Now that instantly gives us a problem. Because the word sin is a feminine word. Appropriately. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. And you have to be nice. (laughs) That's a joke, of course. But in normal Hebrew grammar, watch this. If this is a feminine, let's do this. She, sin, is crouching at the door and what should this be? Her. That's right. In normal, normal Hebrew grammar, it, they should agree. Her desire is for you and you must master her. You see that? Why then did they use the masculine? We got a whole set of problems on this verse. And there are as many very different views as you want to grab a commentary. Some people have put it this way. Well, it's sin desiring Cain. That's what it is. It's sin is desiring Cain. If it's sin, the genders ought to agree. Problem with that view. Well, it's Abel desiring Cain. So Abel had a female identity problem? Her? Not buying it. Again, the genders don't agree. Problem. So you know what most, the predominant major view is of evangelical Christendom when they come to this verse? Anytime you have a problem in Christendom, you just say, well, it's figurative. (laughs) See, that's how you explain it. It's just figurative. Sin is acting like an animal. And it's just kind of figuratively here, crouching at the door, waiting to devour Cain, but he's got to master it. But again, what's the problem? You've got gender problems. The two don't agree, feminine to feminine. But a bigger problem. And here's why I want you to tune in. Would you use a figurative passage to help you interpret a very literal passage? Is Genesis 3.16, when it's talking about male-female roles, figurative? No way. One of the rules when you use the principle of analogy of Scripture is you don't use obscure verses as proof texts. You use very clear, straightforward, easy to understand verses to help as proof texts. Well, Frank, is there such a verse? You were going to ask that, right? Yes. You were going to ask that, right? Is there a very clear verse which teaches about desire. Yeah. Turn over to Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon. And again, notice how we're continuing to put the Song of Solomon before you in preparation for when we teach it. Amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. Guess what most theologians have done with this chapter? It's too graphic. It's pornography in the Bible. It's too sexually explicit. So it must be figurative. It's Christ's love for the church. That's what it's teaching. Christ's love for the church. Fingers on your buzzer. That's not it, gang. It is God's design for marital love. And I want to call your attention to the fact that in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, 
the Shulamite woman is speaking. The bride of Solomon, the king. And look what she says. I am my beloved's. His desire is for me. What desire are you talking about, hon? Read on. She continues to talk. Come, my beloved. Let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. And there I will give you my love. What desire are we talking about here, gang? What's the answer? The pure expression of sexual love within the marriage. I don't have that one up here. Okay. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. There it is. Verse 10. It's a pure sexual desire. And who, incidentally, I've got to sidetrack here just a bit. Who's the one who's expressing this sexual desire? The woman. Let me address this for just a minute. We will hit this ultra hard when we get to this passage and teach this book. As I counsel with marital couples... Do you know who I find 95% of the time is the initiator of the sexual relationship? Go ahead, gang, say it. I believe that there's a lot of abuse going on. A lot of abuse in the husband-wife relationship. Men are being sold a bill of goods that if they don't get it, they're going to die. Okay? And so they're way over here at this extreme. And women have been abused just the same way on the opposite side of the spectrum with a Victorian element that, that is foreign to the scripture. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. It's not for you, it's not for you, it's not for you. Fulfill your duty, fulfill your duty, fulfill your duty. And so you got both of them at the opposite end of the spectrum. And he's chasing her all over the place and she's running from him. And I will suggest to you that when you have a proper relationship of Christ-like love being expressed by the husband independent of that sexual issue. Through the Song of Solomon, you will begin to see a wife who is so secure in that love relationship that she actually becomes so desirous of him that she becomes the initiator. We find that throughout this book in the Song of Solomon. That's an incredible thing. I think we've been sold a big bill of goods, gang. I really do. That's just to prepare you for Son of Solomon and a while down the road. In any event, a pure sexual desire. Let's now go back to Genesis 3 and put it together and I'll show you what's going on. What's the number one rule of biblically interpreting the Bible? What is it? Context. All right, let's look at view number one. All right, girl, you fell. You were deceived. I'm going to give you pain and childbirth. What's the context? Pain and childbirth. Specific intimate context? 
Children. What's element two? Submission. Those two fit? They go together? Uh uh. But view two? In fact, I'm not going to do that yet. View two? What's the immediate context of verse 16? Pain in childbirth? Question, gang. How do you get children? Survey said sexual union. Sexual desire. Now, does that fit the specific intimate context? Yeah. I don't understand. What's going on here? All right, let's put the whole scenario together. Eve, sweetheart, you left your role. You stepped out from under that protective umbrella of your hubby and you did what you wanted to do independent of him. That was wrong. Now, Adam, you left your role as the shepherd and you followed her lead. And look at the consequences of this thing. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to get pain in childbirth, girl. It's a reminder of, of the consequences of faulty behavior. And, and hubby, you're still going to work to provide, but now it's going to be sweat. Consequence of your faulty behavior. Reminder. But, Eve, you're still going to desire him. And Adam, you're still going to be her shepherd. Our Father God is not in the business of cursing His children. Our Father God is in the business of restoring and redeeming His children. And in the process of restoring and redeeming His children, I believe very clearly that Genesis 3.16 is teaching the restoring and redeeming of the proper biblical roles that they had abandoned. And let's look at just how the specific context would fit here. Can you just picture Eve for just a minute? There she is. She went out on her own. She did something she shouldn't have done. She falls. Hubby follows her lead, chooses her over his God, and he falls. Now you got the two of them hiding in the bushes from God and hiding from each other. God comes walking in the bushes and says, what's going on here? Did you eat from that tree? And instantly, what does the brave critter do? Her, right? It's her, God. The one that you gave to me. God now says, woman, you're going to have some pain in childbirth, sweetheart. Pain in childbirth? Yeah. Do you know what that means? That means, sweet ladies, that every time that guy comes around you with that look in his eye, that you are in danger of being brought to the very doorstep of death. What's the danger for Eve? You think I'm going to do that with you? No way, Jake. See what's going on? So God said, yet, contrast, Eve, the roles are going to stay. I'm going to redeem I'm going to restore. You're still going to sexually desire that guy. And he's still going to be your shepherd. 
Isn't that neat? Now, does that sound like God? Yeah. Doesn't it? I mean, am I the only one who thinks that sounds like God? Does that sound like God? Yeah. That's a much, much better picture of God. Well, Frank, what about culture? Them women, they rebel. My dog and I are often alone because of it. (laughs) They do. Yeah, they do. But let me ask you this. Are women the only ones that rebel? I would suggest to you that all people rebel against authority. It's not just a thing of women. It's men. Men rebel against their employers. Men rebel against church authority. Men rebel against the government. Yeah, women rebel against men, but children rebel against parents. It is not the result of a curse on women. It is the result of sin entering the human race. And it's a problem that every single one of us struggles with. Amen? Don't single out women for this. That's abusive. And so what God has done is reaffirm the roles not curse this couple. Now, there's one more passage that's been used like this, and we'll do it real quickly. Turn over to 1 Timothy 2. And tune in here, because this passage has caused more confusion for more people in the church than you can shake a stick at. Start in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 2. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not, verse 12, allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? Here's the explanation. For it was Adam who was first created and Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. And so here's what these people will do with this verse. They will say this, women are not to usurp authority over a man. Why not? Well, verse 13, created order. Man created first, then woman. Again, not inferiority, but order within society. And secondly, that Eve, boy, she sinned. See how it works? And so it's a one-two punch. Women, you're not allowed authority over man. Two reasons. Created order and he blew it. In other words, so God established the roles subsequent to the fall, just like we read from that theologian. It's not it, gang. Women are not to usurp authority over a man. Why? Because of the created order and the roles that God established. And, next verse, verse 14, not because Eve blew it, but Eve is an illustration of what happens when you don't follow God's order. Look, women, don't usurp authority over man. That's not the created order. And illustration, look what happened when Eve left created order. See that? It's an illustration, not an explanation. Y'all with me? Many people try to get out of this by saying it's culture. That was cultural for them. No. Created order. 
1 Corinthians 11.9 teaches the same thing. Created order. Created order is for all cultures. Right? So it's not a cultural issue here. Well, what about then verse 15? Look at this. This verse is something. I'm going to read the New American Standard. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What in the world is that? That is here. Just like with Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16, woman, you got pain in childbirth, but don't slam women. You're still going to desire him. He's still going to rule you. What's the danger here? Women, don't usurp authority because... Created order? Eve blew it. What's the temptation to do? Slam Eve. Right? And that's what Paul does in verse 15. Don't slam Eve. What are you talking about, Frank? Walk through it. Here we go. Just as Genesis 3.16 reaffirmed the marriage roles, 1 Timothy 2.15 reaffirms Eve as God's unique possession. Say, what do you mean? Here we go. Real quick. This won't take long. But verse 15 is so confusing. Yes. Here's some of the views. Women are going to be spiritually saved if they die in childbirth. So if you're a lady and you're delivering a baby and you die, you're spiritually saved. Your soul, you're going to heaven. That's one view. You're going to be spiritually saved, second view, if you fulfill your role by bearing children and being in the home. You know what this does? This keeps women in the home. Bearing children. Because their eternity depends on it. You see that? But both of those teach salvation by what? Works. So we don't like that. And rightly so. So what the translators did, if you have a New American Standard or an NIV, is they changed the word saved to preserved. And you end up with a view like this. That you're going to be physically preserved in childbirth if you're a godly woman. What if a woman dies in childbirth? Well, she had sin in her life. That's vicious. There's no other way to say it. That is pure vicious. If a woman were to die in childbirth, there was something wrong in her life. That's tragic. So you can end up with this view, and this is the most popular one. That a woman will experience her salvation when she fulfills God's role by staying in the home. In other words, woman, you were created to be in the home. You were created to bear children. You were created to be the major influence on your children's life. And if you will stay at home and fulfill that role, then you will experience the peace that comes from fulfilling that role. If you think about it, this is true. Women, little baby girls, learn how to be women supremely from who? Their mamas. Little guys learn about being a guy from their mamas as their mamas encourage them and build them up. You know it's true. Little guy throws a rock. Who's he demonstrating that for? For his dad? For who? Watch me, mom. Isn't that what they do? When the guy scores the touchdown at the end, at the end in the game and the camera zooms in, what does he say? 
Hi, Mom. <laughs> Women, you have the supreme role of training up the next generation of godly men and women, and that's an awesome thing. But here's the problem. Thank you. Don't use 1 Timothy 2.15 to teach that. That's not what's being taught in 1 Timothy 2.15. If you have a New American Standard or an NIV, how did they translate the word saved? Preserved. Guess what? Watch this, please. Don't let me lose you. The Greek word there is sozo. It is the Greek word for saved. It is used 31 times by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And every single time it's used, it's in reference to being spiritually saved. Not preserved. Not experiencing. Spiritual salvation. What is sozo used for? Spiritual salvation. Every single time. This would be the only exception in the New Testament. Used by the Apostle Paul. What does it say about treating it that way? Probably not a good idea to do it. Well then, what in the world is Paul saying? Stay with me, this is going to be neat. Time for a Greek lesson. There it is, 1 Timothy 2.15, in the Greek. Ron, would you please read that for us? You have glasses with you? Okay, here we go. I want you to watch this. There is the Greek word sozo with its ending on it. And what I want you to note is that it is a feminine singular ending and should be translated she. If you have a New American Standard or an NIV and it translates it women, cross it out, gang. That is a translational interpretation by the people who translated from the Greek into that version of the Bible. And again, I don't like to do this most times because I don't want to undermine your view of your Bible. But this is one time you've got to see this. Because the results are tragic in the marital relationships. So it should be, she will be saved. Notice it is saved, not preserved. Again, if your Bible says preserved, cross it out, write saved. That's what it means. But, through definite article, the childbearing. Definite article is a mark of distinction. If I said anthropos, means man. Who am I talking about? Who knows? That man, that man, that man, all different kinds of men. Anthropos. But if I say, ha, Anthropos. The man. Who am I talking about? That man. Get the idea? It's a mark of distinction. All right. Now let's look at the way they translated it. Here we go. The NAS. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children. They missed it. The NIV. Women shall be saved through childbearing. Now, they did better on saved, but they missed it here, and they missed the definite article. Now, if you're spiritual like me and use a King James, you nail this one pretty good. King James has it this way. She, just like the Greek is, shall be saved, just like the Greek is, in, what did they forget? The definite article. In the childbearing. Now put it together. Put it together and watch what happens. I do not allow a woman to usurp authority over a man. Why? Created order. Adam was created first, then the woman. Now what happens when a woman leaves that authority? Tragic consequences. Look at Eve. Eve stepped out. 
fell into sin. But don't slam Eve. She is going to be saved in the childbearing. What's that a reference to? To who's that a reference to? To who? To Jesus. And all other women, now women comes in, now women comes in, Greek word. And all women also, if they continue in faith, love, and sobriety, just like Eve. And do you see how it fits? Does that clear up all the questions? Who are we talking about in 1 Timothy 2.15? We're talking about Eve. We're talking about Eve, even though she fell, entering into salvation through faith in the Messiah that would come. In other words, Eve was the very first woman of faith. Eve was the very first woman to believe the gospel. You want me to show you just how firmly she believed it? Go back to Genesis chapter 4 and I want to show show you something and we're going to end here. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. We're almost done. Hang in there. Let's read Genesis 4, 1 together. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. They had sexual union. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And then she said, I have gotten a man-child. New American Standard people, watch this. With the help of the Lord. What did you notice about with the help of? It's in italics. What's that tell you? It doesn't belong there. It's not in the original. NIV, same thing. With the help of. Doesn't belong there. King James people. I have gotten a man from the Lord. Is it in italics? Should be. It's not in the text. Well then, what does the literal Hebrew read? Watch this. I have gotten a man. The Lord. Wow. What do you mean? Here's Eve. Eve fell into sin. God says, Eve... Pain and childbirth, girl. You shouldn't have done that. But look, you're still going to desire your hubby. He's still going to shepherd you. And not only that, girl, I'm putting enmity between your seed and and the serpents. And he's going to come through your seed. He's coming the Redeemer. He's going to stomp on his head. She has a sexual union with her hubby. She gets pregnant. She has a child. Instantly, what does she think? I have gotten a man, the Lord, the promised seed. I have born Messiah. Now, she's in for a rude awakening. (laughs) But remember, Scripture records what people said, even if they were wrong. I think what you see right there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, is the very first statement of faith made by a human being. Don't slam Eve, gang. She's the first lady of faith. Isn't that neat? That's good stuff. And so, all women, if they will put their faith in Messiah, they too shall be saved. And not only all women, but what? All men. And when all men and all women put faith in the Messiah, then the sin effect is going to go and be put down. And we'll end up with this. Oh, and that's not supposed to be there. We'll end up with this. Right? And maybe even... That. And all the women of God said, 
Amen. You got to come back next week. Because next week is the abuse of women part two. Our Father God, thank you for truth. I pray that uh, we would all see, Father, that you were not cursing your children. But you're in the business of reaffirming, restoring. And you restored relationships. You restored desire. You restored Eve personally. That gives us hope for our marriages. We're not battling against a divine curse. We're just battling against sin. Sin in each and every one of us. That by the power of your spirit can be put under so that love can reign in mutual submission and exaltation of our partners. Thank you for that great truth. Thank you that your word is clear. I pray that each one here would be a Berean and search this out and see if indeed it is not true. Thank you, Father. Amen and amen. Go be the lovers that you are.